Welcome, everyone. Welcome, one and all. We continue today, Lieutenant Robert Darling. He was there, folks, 9-11, deep below the White House in the President's nuclear-proof secure bunker. Sitting directly beside him for 24 hours, Dr. Condoleezza Rice. Directly behind him giving orders... None other than Vice President Dick Cheney. That's right, folks. It was in lockdown, don't forget. The United States was under imminent attack. Dick Cheney rose to the occasion. He shone that day. Another person that rose to the occasion? Dr. Condoleezza Rice. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling. Was there anybody else you felt, Sean, that rose to the situation that was at hand? You know, I talk in the book also about Dr. Rice, someone as Mm. powerful as she is. She was incredible because she took a step back. She let the military members in the room run the military operation. She stood behind me most of the time. And when she could interject or needed to interject herself, she would. But she was confident in her in her own abilities to let the military do what they're trained to do. And believe me, uh, a great leader knows when to lead and also knows when to take a step back. And she took a step back initially and then ultimately throughout the day, She was in charge of bringing all the actionable intelligence from all the agencies into the White House for when the president arrived at 630 that that evening. She was ready. She's the one who met him at the airplane, and she's the one who escorted him down to the bunker. I think she was just an incredible presence to have in the bunker that day. She was the right person to assist all of us, powerful as she is. Ease off the gas pedal. Stop what you're doing. Put the coffee on. Put the tea on. Listen to this show, Real World History, something you will not get on any other radio show or mainstream radio. Someone who is directly inside the White House nuclear-proof secure bunker below the White House. Our guest today, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, tells us what took place that day, right now on Brent Holland. This is an incredible story, folks. It is a true story, an absolutely true story. And we are getting an insider's view of what took place, all those decisions inside the White House on 9-11. Doesn't get any more real than this. Our guest today, very brave man, and thank goodness there was men of this fortitude there that day. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling is our guest, and he's the author of a book called 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, you're going to want to get this book, without question. Get a whole pile of them. Christmas is coming up. It's well worth it. It's going to be an incredible story, an incredible read. It is a true story. www.brentholland.show. 
www.thebookcoverbook.com. Click on the book cover. We'll take you right to a place where you can order it from the comfort of your own home. Get this book. Get this book. Bob, would you like to continue? Sure, Brent, I'd be happy to. For the remainder of the day now, we have the president on the phone. As a matter of fact, let me, let me take you down to about 1028 that morning. We just got word at, at 959, I believe it was, that the, in fact, the South Tower had just collapsed. They had the president on the phone. They told the president, uh, this is the vice president talking to the president, that it's our best guess that we had 20,000 dead Americans at that point. Yeah. We had not spoken to Giuliani. There was no report for FEMA. There was nothing coming out of New York. That was pure speculation of someone yelling out, Mr. Vice President, on any given day, 50,000 people work in those towers or in and around lower Manhattan. And with the tower on the ground, 110 stories now laying on the ground, we our best guess is we have 20,000 dead Americans. At 1028, when the North Tower collapsed, they again got the president on the phone and told them that it was our best guess that we had at least 40,000 dead Americans in New York. Yeah, I remember that. They were supposed to be bringing, prior to this, a lot of survivors up north to Canada. That's why we went down to give blood, and they were preparing all the hospitals, clearing out beds, etc., for the catastrophe. Oh, my God, what a day. Are you married, Bob? Were you able to get in touch with loved ones yourself? I am married, and at the time, I had two boys. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're older now, but they were seven and four. I spoke to my wife quickly that morning and said, don't worry about me. I'm in the safest place possible. I'm really busy. I got to go. And the minute I hung up, then Dr. Rice ended up saying, that's a great idea. And then she called her family uh, somewhere down in Mississippi. But we got the word out to our families that we were in full operational mode and we were fine. And through the wives network, she was out taking care of our kids and make sure that they all got home and you know, they were all taking care of each other. I spent a full almost 24 hours in the bunker. The rest of the day was clearing the skies and getting the cabinet-level officials home. Uh, the president wanted his 8 o'clock in the morning on September 12th. He was going to have an emergency cabinet meeting. He wanted his cabinet around him, every single member of that cabinet, and that was our focus for the second half of the day was to get the Air Force to bring all those members uh, back home and I got home about 24 hours later, about 11 o'clock the next morning when I came through the door for the first time and, and had an opportunity to uh, see my wife and, and my kids. Does the Situation Room, I guess they're working in tandem with all the agencies from around the world. Were there rumors flying around as they were here in Canada? Because I remember our Canadian Air Force had forced the plane to land. And as it turned out, it was just a passenger plane. It was just a miscommunication. They forced them to land in Toronto. But then we heard a rumor that some box cutters were found on a plane that was in Toronto, hidden under a seat. And all these rumors were flying around that there was more planes in the air that could attack Chicago, Los Angeles. I suspect all those things were coming into the Situation Room en masse and all at once. How does that, because again, there was no template happening, how does that information get discerned, get analyzed in those split seconds? That's a great question, and we were chasing airliners around all day long, just as you described. You know, we have 4,500 commercial aviation airplanes in the air that morning. Mm -hmm. By the time they ordered, the vice president ordered clear of the skies uh, with Secretary Mineta, we were down to about 2,000-plus airliners. And, and those, air, those airline pilots, they own the 300 people that are sitting behind them. So naturally, if they don't want to land in Kansas, they would rather make it to Nevada or somewhere else. 
they were trying to talk to their U.S. Air Base, American Airlines Base, United Base, and we assumed if they were not ex- complying exactly with their land instructions, that they were under some form of duress, and we were scrambling fighters to chase them down to see why they weren't complying. Uh, so there was a myriad of reasons going on. Maybe some of them wanted to get somewhere else because there's a there's a better hub, or if I can make it there, I can get fuel. And you know they don't know the situation that's happening outside the aircraft, and we assume that they had you know duress inside the aircraft. So there was a lot of that going on. At one point, we were looking for ten separate airliners, and then we slowly start scratching them off as they became accountable. And once we got word that they were safely on the ground somewhere without incident, uh, we would write them off the list. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com You know, you had mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis before, and folks, for those of you that weren't around during those days, and I was just a kid myself, October 1962, the Russians, the Soviet Union, it was the Cold War, folks, had decided to put offensive nuclear weapons in Cuba. And now you got to remember, this is just a few years after the revolution and Castro took over. President Kennedy saw spy plane photographs of those missiles and told the Soviets he wanted them out. They refused. And thus, we embarked on the scariest, I would say, the closest we've ever come to a nuclear confrontation, nuclear holocaust. Ted Sorensen, I spoke with Ted Sorensen, his fans of the show know was on this show. Ted Sorensen, of course, was JFK's speechwriter. More than that, he was JFK's top eight. He was the fellow that wrote the letter to get Khrushchev to back down, and he takes us through that whole process, the missile crisis. And, you know, this is just another parallel to that. And thank God, once again, we had men of the fortitude of a Ted Sorensen, President Kennedy, President Bush, and boy, I'm going to get some criticism over that, and Mr. Dick Cheney that day. And, of course, our author today, Lieutenant Colonel Bob Darling, inside the decision-making areas so that this country and the United States would remain safe, because it could have been a lot worse, as bad as it was. It could have been a heck of a lot worse. The decision-making, I'd like to go back to that, because a lot of the students that are listening now, this is the template I want to give them, how to get the information in, and then how to define that information and make the correct decision, or what at least you believe the correct decision is, in a matter of seconds. Were you giving any advice to anybody at the time? or just following orders? How did that work for you? Well, I was receiving all the information from the upstairs situation room and it was being filtered down to my desk now oh, in the PIOC. And then I would I would turn and give it directly to the vice president. I, I will have to say this. You know, normally the White House chain of command is, is probably the most vertical chain of command you're ever going to find. It's got to go through everybody and then after a million questions, if it's worthy of the, the White House chief of staff and above, then it gets filtered up that way. That day, if you were a Lance Corporal or a private in the military, you could have spoken directly with the President of the United States. If you had some information and you got it into the White House, it was going to be vetted at the highest levels of our government. It was really Cheney, and, I, and you mentioned his finest moment. Yes, it was Cheney who was a congressman, a White House chief of staff for President Ford, a Secretary of Defense, and now Vice President of the United States, his experience gave him so much um, visibility and insight into our country's emergency action procedures, for example, that when information reached him, he knew what assets and what people were in place to handle this crisis the best. 
President Bush could have had a better right-hand man in the White House that day than Vice President Cheney. He was very knowledgeable, very cool under fire, and, and just so impressive on so many different levels. Bob, what are some of the myths surrounding 9-11 that just make you crazy? First of all, I want to say this one myth. It's American Airlines Flight 77, the one that struck the Pentagon. Yes, it was not the aircraft that overflew the White House that day, believe it or not. The aircraft that overflew the White House was the National Airborne Operations Center. It was actually a command and control aircraft owned by the United States Air Force. They were doing an exercise that day, and for whatever reason, when it was scrambled, exercise terminated, and they probably were trying to send that aircraft south to be close to Air Force One in Florida. For whatever reason, it flew directly over the White House. Uh, that, so those two planes were not the ones that we, you know, they were, they were separate aircraft, actually. So one overflew the White House at 930, and, and American Airlines Flight 77 hit the Pentagon was a completely separate aircraft. Those two had nothing to do with each other. There was, um, we did not shoot down Flight 93 that day, though the order was given to shoot it down. The F-15s were en route, but it, we did not shoot it down. Uh, it was the passengers on board. There is no conspiracy there. There was no missing missile off the rail. There's no one told to be hush-hush. It just didn't happen. Uh, it, what we were uh, going to shoot it down, obviously, when you have three aircraft into three targets, this fourth one now heading to Washington, D.C., as tragic as that would have been, the minute those terrorists overtook that aircraft, it was essentially a weapon of war. It was a 150-ton Tomahawk cruise missile heading for Washington. And as tragic as it is, the right course of action would have been to terminate that attack. But thank God, instead of the passengers being victims, they rallied together, and we got a plane full of heroes rather than a, a plane full of victims. And the yes, sir. Uh, as far as New York, you know, some of the conspiracy theories you hear up there, um, you know, they just don't exist. There was the U.S. government. Uh, I tell you what, there were probably, in some ways, could have been there was some negligence probably in handling the intelligence up to that day, but we surely didn't have anything to do with that day. That's again my personal professional opinion. You're listening to the Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com. I tend to agree with you too. Not this one, folks. I don't think there was a conspiracy at all. Once again, we're speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Bob Darling. I was only supposed to keep him for 20 minutes, but he's just too good. I mean, this story is it is so essential for us to learn from this, none better than somebody that was right there inside the bunker that day, right beside Vice President Dick Cheney. And indeed, I think it was Dick Cheney's finest hour. The book is called 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker. 9-11 we're discussing today. All those decisions. Try and imagine how much information was just flooding, flooding into that bunker that day. And you have to make a split-second decision in order to save lives. As Lieutenant Colonel Bob Darling was just telling us, Mr. Cheney had to make a split-second decision whether to shoot that plane down. He did give the order, but the passengers overtook it. They are now heroes indeed, without question. Do you feel that the truthers that were out there, the, the truthers folks, I call them that, because they believe 9-11 was a conspiracy, that it was just the military, quote-unquote, industrial complex, again, trying to start a war to fund themselves. Have you ever confronted anybody about that? Has anybody ever come up to you and 
said you're full of poop and this is what really took place? Yeah, a few people have. Matter of fact, close friends of mine actually came up and really despite me telling them the same story I'm telling you, they have their own doubts. They'll, they'll latch on to a small piece of information and that's it. Somebody will say to them, hey, there was no, uh, there was no airline seats at the Pentagon. How come? And they're going to say, well, it, it, it must have been a missile. It must have been this. Well, if they would just do their homework, actually talk to a first responder there, they know that when an airplane goes into a building at over 500 miles an hour, those wings fold up and, and things get disintegrated uh, rather rapidly, especially under jet fuel. And they would have realized that there were aircraft parts, there were pieces, there were there were all those things, but they just want to latch on to something somebody said, and therefore it must be true. So even despite being there at, at the helm and, and between the National Command Authority, I still have naysayers say, I'm not convinced. Is there anybody inside the bunker whose decisions you were disappointed with or their lack of decision-making? Well, in my book, too, I'll talk about the, there were some com uh, communication glitches. There were some problems, actually, with uh, our communication, the bunker's communication with Air Force One. And I think something as highly practiced and sophisticated as the White House Communication Agency, with all those folks, those Americans, uh, now on the cell phones, trying to use the phone, trying to get word to loved ones, we actually overloaded the system a few different times, and the vice president himself was cut off with Air Force One. We did have some problems. With um, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld being out in the parking lot doing triage for the wounded over at the Pentagon, as admirable as that is, uh, that was not his appointed place of duty. His appointed place of duty was to be at the helm of the National Military Command Center early that day. He could have reached out to the president and they could have spoke as a member of the National Command Authority, the only other member beside the president. It was his job to be uh, at the helm, not unfortunately out helping with the first responders. Uh, like I said, the human side of me says good on them. The operational side of me says that's not where you belong. So there were, there were some, some folks that uh, I don't think performed as well as others. Besides Vice President Dick Cheney, inside the bunker that day, was there anybody else you felt, Sean, that rose to the situation that was at hand? You know, I talk in the book also about Dr. Rice, someone as powerful mm. as she is. She was incredible because she took a step back. She let the military members in the room run the military operation. She stood behind me most of the time. And when she could interject or needed to interject herself, she would. But she was confident in her, in her own abilities to let the military do what they're trained to do. And believe me, uh, a great leader knows when to lead and also knows when to take a step back. And she took a step back initially, and then ultimately throughout the day, she was in charge of bringing all the actionable intelligence from all the agencies into the White House for when the president arrived at 630 that, that evening. She was ready. She's the one who met him at the airplane, and she's the one who escorted him down to the bunker. I think she was in, just an incredible presence to have in the bunker that day. She was the right person to assist all of us. Powerful she is. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com The book, 
24 hours inside the president's bunker. Our guest and its author today, Lieutenant Colonel Bob Darling. And thank goodness, I'll say it again, for folks like that, that day, you know, it divine providence, I'll leave it up to you to decide. But thank goodness those people were in the places that they were to make those decisions. It would have been completely worse if those folks weren't there making those split-second decisions. www.brenthollandshow.com. Just click on the book cover, as always, folks. That'll take you right to a place where you can order this book online. As I said previously, Christmas is coming. I can't think of a better gift to give somebody than actual history of that day. This is something that can be passed down forever from generation to generation in the same way that people lived through Pearl Harbor, in the same way that people lived through the Kennedy assassination. That is real living history. That's what this show is all about. I've only got a couple of more questions and I really do thank you for staying longer, my friend. The question is lessons learned. I've talked to military people before and there's something that is different between NATO allies and I would say the other folks uh, that are in the military and that is that we do something called lessons learned after every mission. And I suspect you did something similar. What were the lessons that were learned? Uh, we really did. You know, I went to work uh, the next day. Uh, I was up there at uh, September 12th, and right away they started looking at what went well and what didn't go well. And one of the things that did not go well in the eyes of the vice president or, or the executive branch was the communication that I talked to you about before. That, mm. that did not go well. Um, the military emergency actions, they were very pleased at. We got all the principles where they needed to go. The military, obviously, is a well-oiled machine. They practice things over and over again. They don't need communications to execute. Uh, but as far as the communication between the principles of different agencies, uh, the communication between us and FEMA, FEMA and the hospitals in New York, FEMA and Mayor Giuliani, who was up in New York, those um, those executives, if you will, between the agencies had a real tough time. There was terrible communication between the firemen and the police officers in, in Manhattan as well. And that really was the biggest investment made. It was aimed in uh, command and control and communications, getting more satellites, better phones, better procedures in place so that we can all speak to one another in times of crisis. Are we safer today? You know, we're, we're absolutely... You know, it's a yes and no answer. But in, uh, I want to say we are safer today. The, the, really, the people that we have in the front lines of, of your country and ours, you know, our CIA, our FBI, our police force, the Department of Homeland Security was created. Now we have a Northern Command uh, to work in conjunction with our NORAD command. Uh, the FAA is completely, has a hotline called Domestic Events Network that's automatically always an open line between the military uh, we are leaning forward. We're deployed. We've been in two wars in nine years. I think we're taking the fight to them. And I think as a result of the vigilance of our countries and the people on the front lines, we are safer today. But our enemies obviously are, are smart and resilient themselves, and we have to just stay in the fight and stay forward of them to prevent another 9-11 from happening. Folks, our guest today, Lieutenant Colonel Bob Darling, the book 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, www.brenthollandshow.com. Click on the book cover, get this book, get a lot of these books, hand them out, because this is a story that has to resonate not only today, but in future generations as well, and none better than somebody who was right there. 
I've always considered people south of the border, Americans, more than just neighbors. They're family, folks. We're family. For some reason, we're tied together. And I think that reason is to achieve mutual respect and show the rest of the world that two countries can live side by side without shooting each other. And we resolve our problems, uh, and they are minute, through dialogue and as families do, we sit around with a cup of coffee and say, you know what, let's do this. And there's more we celebrate together than we don't. And that's what the beauty of this beautiful symbiotic relationship is. I have one last question for you, my friend. You are virtually at a podium right now. Imagine yourself speaking to every university student in Canada. The show is broadcast right across the university system from coast to coast to coast. There's three coasts in Canada. What would you say to them? I would say that we need them. We need every one of them. We need them to stay alert, to remain vigilant, to don't get complacent, to don't think the fight is over, um, to you know, respect our history, know that we're learning from it, but without them, without every member of North America leaning forward with their eyes and their ears, the, our enemies live amongst us. They're out there. They're smart. They're going to continue to try to attack us. But as long as we can count on the eyes and ears of every citizen of Canada the United States to pay attention and spot something that's out of the ordinary and, and be brave enough to report it, we're going to continue to win. Here it is nine-plus years later. We haven't suffered one terrorist attack because of you and because of us leaning forward. Stay in the fight. Don't give up on this. It's too important. Our freedoms are at risk. I want to thank you once again, not only for coming on the show today and staying late, but for your service that day. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brent. It was a pleasure to be with you today. It certainly was for me also, my friend. All the very best to you and yours. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com I don't know about you folks, but I was on the edge of my seat for the whole series of two shows. www.brenthollandshow.com if you missed the first half. Explosive informative, true story of a person that was right there inside the bunker. www.brenthollandshow.com This is what the show is all about, folks. If you're doing real-world history, it is so imperative that you get as close to the original source as possible. In these cases, we offer you the original source for the stories. Not some academic that has read books and made their own analysis. This is the actual person who went through those tumultuous times. Case in point, Mark Lane. Mark Lane survived the Jonestown Massacre. He spent the whole night in Jonestown under threat of execution at gunpoint. He tells us that real-world story. Another case in point, Canadian Marina Nemet was inside Tehran's notorious Evan prison. She was virtually taken out of her cell, tied up against the post in a courtyard, heard the guns click after she was blindfolded until a car pulled up. She had a choice that day, marry her jailer and live or be executed. Right there on the Brent Holland Show, Show. Dot com. Lots of amazing guests coming up on the Brent Holland Show. Stick around, folks. You won't want to miss next week's show. I'm Brent Holland. Thank you all for listening. See you soon.